today on Ag News Daily. And if I am not caught off guard by something that they said, then I'm not asking the right questions. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday from the crew here at Ag News Daily. That means it's from me, Mike Pearson, and co-host Delaney Howell. Delaney, how is your Friday shaping up? Oh, it's been very busy, but I am excited because we have really a fantastic interview. I say that a lot, I know, but I am not kidding anybody. Today's interview is really fantastic with Vance Crow. For those of you that know who he is or follow him on Twitter, or maybe don't, he is the former director of Millennial Engagement for Monsanto and just has his hands in a lot of different pieces of the pie, so to speak. Oh, for sure. And you know, Delaney, I don't think we've ever had a non-fantastic interview on the Ag News Daily oh, Podcast. They are wow. all incredible, and listeners, you can catch them all on our website at agnewsdaily.com. That they can, Mike. That they can. Oh, but before we get to Vance, we got to work through the world of agricultural news. I've got an update here from KGLO News up in South Dakota. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is working to release stored flood water in the upper basin to reduce the chance of flooding next spring. This has been a huge concern given all of the rainfall in, nor- in the northern Great Plains and in that recent snowstorm that is uh, is continuing to add flood pressure to the Missouri River. They're worried about being able to handle flooding next spring. So basically, they're trying to dump water out of the reservoir now. They're going to dump uh, 80,000 cubic feet per second out of the Gavin's Point Dam and uh, similar numbers from Fort Peck, Garrison, and Oahe. And uh, they're just trying to clear out some storage. So we might see upper, we might see raised levels on the upper Missouri here in the next couple weeks for our friends in South Dakota, Nebraska, and, uh, you know, northern Iowa. Yes, I saw that as well. I also saw that they have been holding some fall meetings to let folks know throughout that area. And apparently there was a meeting on Thursday night in Nebraska City, and there was a lot of emotional, upset people at the Army Corps sharing this with them. Perfect, perfect. Listeners, if you're in that area, you could be affected. Get to one of those meetings or visit with somebody who has. Yes, but it's just sad to think we might be starting that cycle over again. I know, just literally cannot catch a break this year. No, unfortunately we cannot. One thing it seems that we may have gotten a break in, though, is Chinese tariffs, or so we think. But uh, we just continue to hear trickles of news out about that. However, apparently Mike Pence shared some news at a recent event that he was speaking at about that Chinese tariff thing, whole issue that might have thrown a monkey wrench in all of it and um, just continues to share that the U.S. does not want to get rid of tariffs. And we saw China, I I thought this was interesting too, this got sent to us by a listener this AM, but China has passed a new law that says it will protect the intellectual property rights of foreign businesses operating in the country. So it seems that they may have made a small concession there with that, uh, wanting to get that part of the trade issue resolved. Well, if they stick to that, if that's if that's an honest uh, claim in good faith, that would actually be a huge concession by the Chinese. The question is, how are we going to monitor it? I think enforcement remains the, one of the major issues in getting a, a big trade deal done. We did get some good news, though, Delaney, that uh, 
came out of D.C. today. U.S. and Chinese trade officials are, quote, close to finalizing some parts of the phase one agreement. Uh, they've been having some telephone discussions today, and uh, the USTR's office said that the uh, talks would proceed continuously. And um, basically they said they made headway on specific issues, and the two sides are close to finalizing some sections of the agreement. Discussions will go on continuously at the deputy level, and the principals will have another call in the near future. So it was good news. We did see a bump in the grain markets after this was reported early in the day, but uh, as we'll get to in the market segment, that bump could not be sustained, and it was uh, kind of an ugly close in uh, in all the grains today. Yeah, I just think that I'm sure the markets are tired of this whiplash. I'm personally tired of this whiplash. It's like you never know what you're going to wake up and find today on the Chinese-U.S. trade front. No, I mean, that's 100% the truth. We're living in an era where a couple of tweets or a couple of uh, unnamed sources can really shape how these uh, these talks are perceived by both the public and the market, Delaney, mm -hmm. because after that report came out, I mentioned the grain saw a little bit of a bump, but the S&P 500 today rose above its record closing high after um, that was announced. Uh, the uh, the S&P closed at 3,025.86 after touching a record high of 3,027.98. So, I mean, um, it was it was up there today. The, the market got pretty pretty fired up on the idea that maybe we're going to get some progress here on this uh, phase one piece at least. Well, I'm glad the markets are fired up because I am personally still a little hesitant about it myself. Me too. I am still I'm kind of a perma bear on this deal. Yes. I, I just don't don't see it happening. No. But I would love to be wrong. President G, President Trump, prove me wrong. Absolutely. Um, Mike, I wanted to pick your brain about this because I know you're now working in the big city uh, and mm -hmm. working a lo lot more closely with the USDA and some of the reports that they put out. But I saw a press release this morning that the USDA is going to release, early release, a select set of commodity tables for their agricultural projections up until 2029. And so on February, f or excuse me, November 1st, uh, they will release tables forecasting long-term supply use, price projections for major U.S. crops and livestock, and also U.S. and international macroeconomic assumptions, as well as their short-term projections from the October 11th WASD report as their starting point. I wanted to ask, though, is this something they commonly do? Because I don't think I remember them doing something this long term before, but maybe it's just because I didn't pay that close of attention to it really prior to the podcast starting. Yeah, it, I, they've they've issued these a lot. Um, they, they typically go out 10 years with their long range forecast. I think they come out annually. And, you know, the market kind of treats them as not worth a whole lot more than the paper they're printed on. They're probably good economic exercises. And, you know, I'm sure there's some value in putting them out there, but they don't have a whole lot of impact on price because like we've seen this year with the USDA, you know, one report, we just lost 300 million bushels of corn. You know, I mean, if they can't get that right, you know, how can we trust them out to 2029? So I think just releasing it early drove some headlines and got people talking about it more than they usually do. Okay, that was my question, too, was how much really of an impact it would have into the markets. 
Yeah, not a whole lot. You know, I mean, the fact that they're using the October WASI numbers as a baseline, um, you know, those numbers could be completely uh, outmoded or outdated here on November 8th when we get the next WASDI report. So, yeah, probably not going to be a huge mover. All right. Well, actually, I'm out of news today. You kind of stole some of my headlines, Mike. But what else is jumping out at you? Well, I just have, uh, let's see here, two other stories. One, just an update. Mexico announced that they expect U.S. lawmakers to begin the process of approving the USMCA deal here very shortly. Um, they believe this because President Andres Manuel López Obrador of Mexico has promised wage increases and funding for labor reforms. That was one of the Democrats' big concerns about USMCA. And so now Mexico is saying, hey, we've addressed it. Let's get this done. Um, and I guess we'll see if this announcement uh, actually starts to move the needle as we get into next week when everybody is back in Congress doing you know, whatever whatever it is they do, spend taxpayer dollars and so forth. Um, other piece of news I had, this one is interesting. You know, we've talked a lot this year about Chinese demand and what agriculture should do to diversify our demand base. You know, I think we kind of realized this year, like we realized back in the late 1970s, that when we have one huge buyer of specific agricultural crops, we can face challenges if we get into a trade war or if we you know, quit exports to them like we did with wheat in the 80s. Um, these things have, have reinvigorated the notion that we need to get out in other countries. Southeast Asia is a hot spot with a huge population, a growing population. It has appeared to be a great place for American ag to start exporting more grain. Whoa. We got a bit of a setback today. Earlier today, Brazil, or no, it's not, excuse me, not Brazil, Thailand um, announced a ban on three chemicals that the government has deemed hazardous. These chemicals are going to seem very familiar to a lot of U.S. growers. It's Paraquat, it's glyphosate, and it's chlorpyrifos, which I always mispronounce. Um, but this ban is expected to take effect on December 1st. It's going to raise these three chemicals up to a, they call it a type four on the country's hazardous substance act. And basically this bans the production, import, export, transfer, or possession of the listed chemicals. Now, the ban, it's, the ban itself doesn't extend to actual ag products. So like we could still sell Roundup Ready beans into, into Thailand. But there are groups of Thai farmers who are saying that Thailand needs to ban all imports of these crops where the chemicals are used, and this could gain steam. So uh, we, earlier today, actually, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Ted McKinney, he is our undersecretary for trade, asked Thailand to postpone the action, at least on glyphosate, and um, he sent that to a letter uh, in to Thailand's prime minister, whose name I cannot pronounce, and uh, he says, you know, if this goes into effect, it would severely impact Thailand's imports of ag commodities such as soybeans and wheat. And, uh, you know, they're trying to, uh, to push this back a little bit. We'll continue to follow this. Thailand this last year imported $593 million worth of American soybeans and $108 million worth of wheat in 2018. So they're not a small buyer. They're definitely, uh, they're definitely in it. You don't want to try and pronounce the Thai... Prime Minister's name. I think it could be fun. Prayuth Chenocha. Oh, see, look, you didn't even, like, blink at that. What's that? I said you didn't even have to stutter or anything at that. Just rolled oh, it off no, the tongue. 
just say it with confidence, and even if you're wrong, it sounds right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for that, Mike. Do you want to run us through today's closing market prices? Oh, boy. You know, I suppose I probably should. But for our grain-producing friends, it was not a great finish mm -hmm. to the week. December corn was unchanged on the day at 386 and three quarters. The March contract was down a half to finish the day at 397 and a half. Soybeans, a big change on the day. November contract dropped 13 cents to close at 920 and a quarter. The January contract was down 12 and a half, finished at 934 and a half. Chicago wheat was the only real upside in the market. Well, wheat complex as a whole was higher. The December Chicago wheat was up one and three quarters at 517 and three quarters. March up two and a quarter to finish the day at 523 and a half. We did see some bullish momentum in the livestock sector. As we take a look at the cattle market, December live cattle up $1.35 at 116.0750, now pushing well above and closing above those midsummer highs before the Tyson fire, so good news there. February live cattle up $1.02 at 121.0750. Feeder cattle, November contract up $1.20 at 145.3750. January up $1.02.50 to finish at 141.60. As we look at lean hogs, mixed trade today. The December contract was up 37.5 cents at 64.92.50. February down 12.50 to close at 73.35. And in the dairy market, class three milk today. October contract obviously coming to a close. That was unchanged on the day at 18.67. November continued yesterday's rally up 13 cents to finish the day at 19.50. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with Mr. Vance Crow. Well, for today's Friday episode, I am so excited. We're going to have a fantastic conversation today with Vance Crow. He's worn many different hats in agriculture. You may know him as the former director of Millennial Engagement for Monsanto. You may also know him from the Vance Crow podcast, or maybe you just follow him on Twitter. Vance, thanks so much for taking the time to conversate with us today. We're excited to have you. Thanks for uh, having me, Delaney. So Vance, tell us about, I want to, I, I just am fascinated by this role that you used to play at Monsanto, the director of millennial engagement. With that role, what did you do for Monsanto? Well, that role was a unique time, not just in my life, but I think in the whole history of agriculture. I think there were decades where agriculture knew that there was steam kind of building up against them. There were people that were becoming suspicious of where their food was grown and and what are the intents of farmers. But for a long time, the big ag companies like Monsanto said, we, we're just going to keep doing our thing. We're going to keep working. We're going to develop new technology and people will eventually come around. But as we all saw, they didn't come around. And eventually Monsanto got itself into the position where they actually had protesters standing outside of their factories threatening to tear down fences and and uh, being really aggressive with employees. So the company finally had to have that moment where they said, we need to change. And they made monumental changes. They they hired a PR firm. They decided they were going to build out a social media team. And even though they don't sell directly to consumers, they were going to try and start talking with consumers. And Monsanto has always been kind of on that leading edge of innovation and trying new things. And hiring me and the team of people that I was on uh, was kind of a new way to do things. They decided not only are we going to do all the standard things, PR firms and social media, we're going to hire people 
that are directly responsible for getting out and talking with those that are afraid of our products and our company and kind of the direction that modern agriculture is going in. So my job was literally to go find those people that have the deepest concerns about GMOs and pesticides and find a way to have conversations that might open their eyes to another way of thinking. And so bring us up to speed. How long were you there and do you feel like you made a meaningful impact? I was there for five years and it was the wildest five years of my life. And I think that I really just hit a cultural wave that you guys even even caught on to. You realized the media landscape is changing. The way that people are learning about new ideas is changing. You saw farmers getting out and telling their stories and getting out on social media. So I was a part of this huge movement that happened. And I can say without question in my mind that we made big changes in the world and not just me and not just my team and not just Monsanto, but really all of agriculture. We did things that nobody expected us to do. So we did a thing called a Reddit AMA, which for anybody that doesn't know, that's like a giant message board where millions of people can see it. And we had a scientist on there named Dr. Fred Perlack. And the interview on online went so well that more people watched it for a longer period of time then watched our Super Bowl ad that we ran in the same month. And so by doing these kind of innovative things and meeting people where they were, people had for the first time the chance to actually talk and ask a scientist from Monsanto questions. And that had never happened before. And you would see that show up in other areas of the Internet and in other conversations. People would reference those types of things, whether it was a Reddit AMA or somebody they met on Twitter. And you saw new ideas spilling into society and becoming a new way of thinking. So to me, it was a major, a monumental change that we're still just now beginning to see the the benefit of. Wow, that's really neat. I think maybe we talked to some folks last week after World Food Prize, because I know you were here in Iowa um, sharing and presenting with folks, and they mentioned that Reddit and just how fascinating that was that you were able to help gauge and guide that conversation with consumers. So that's really neat, thinking outside of the box there to connect with folks. Oh, that's exciting to hear that that was at the World Food Prize. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So so I guess post-Monsanto, Vance, of course, you have the Vance Curl podcast now. Was that the next step for you after you left Monsanto, or was there something else in between there that helped you decide, yes, I need to start my own podcast? I at Monsanto had this chance to see just how important this conversation about food and agriculture was. I mean, it, it, this job actually changed things deep inside of me, including what do I think is the most important problem to work on? And I, because when I came into Monsanto, I essentially was presented with a, a dichotomy. Either the company was as evil as everybody said that they were, and if, if that was the case, I was going to get to run around as director of millennial engagement and discover this, and if that was true, then I was going to go write the greatest tell-all book of all time, but that if it's not true, then you're growing food more bountifully than you ever have before in the history of time, and yet people are afraid and angry about where their food comes from, and no one knows how to stop that. And having had some experiences living in the U.S. Peace Corps in Kenya, I have seen firsthand what happens when people are frightened of their food. And that kind of fear burns out of control. So when Bayer purchased Monsanto, 
they looked at the employees that they had and, and who had been successful. And I was fortunate. They came to me and said, we are delighted with the work you did as director of millennial engagement. We would like to continue moving you up into the executive ranks. So would you like to go to supply chain or finance? Huh. And for me, that was like a, a, a real pivotal moment in my life because I realized I don't actually want to become an executive at an agriculture company. That's never been my dream. And I see that this problem is right here and I can contribute towards solving it. So I was like, well, why don't I just stay doing the type of work I'm doing? And they're like, well, you can, but there, it's not upward mobility. We don't have a role where this is all you do is try and help people figure out how do we explain and solve this problem. And so I said, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there that want help to know how to talk with consumers that want to know how can we get our ideas to outcompete the fear. And I just have to trust that if I truly am passionate about solving this problem, that I can go out and do it. And just like you two have figured out, podcasts are a really important medium. So when I made the decision that I was going to leave, I decided I'm going to do what I couldn't do at Monsanto. I couldn't have my own podcast where I could ask whatever question I wanted and not worry about the lawyers or the PR firm getting involved. Once I was on my own, I realized I can do this the way that I've always imagined, and uh, we'll see if it does what I think it can do. So, Vance, what is the future going to hold for you? You've got the podcast. You've been doing it now. Are you six months in? I'm six months in. Yeah, I just, I just published the uh, 27th interview, and, uh, and then I have these episodes on Friday where I explain communications ideas, and I think I have about nine of those. So I'm brand new to the game. Oh, fantastic. But six months in, you've been growing. You've been seeing your audience grow. I've been seeing a lot more of you on other podcasts as well, getting the ideas out there, telling the story. Where do you think the – I guess what's the pressure point that you're trying to impact here as, as you strike out on your own? That is an excellent question. I think the pressure point that I like uh, – that I'm particularly good at is when people say – I have these really good ideas. I have this deep knowledge. And the way that I got that deep knowledge was that I spent years and years and years studying, learning, experiencing, working. But when I pick my head up to try and explain it to other people, it's difficult for me to put into words. I don't know what they do and don't know. I don't know how, how to frame an idea so that they understand the depth of my knowledge and so my real sweet spot is getting in and talking with experts, listening to their story and helping retell their story so that other people understand why they're doing what they're doing. And I, I can also I also right now I'm consulting with some um, farm organizations and other organizations to help them say, once we have something to say, how do we say it? It's not enough to just put tweets out or to just um write things on Facebook, you have to actually have a plan for how to get those ideas spread out into the world. So I do some speaking uh, that kind of inspires people and gives them the basics. And then I go in and do consulting and workshops that uh, take the ideas and put them into tangible, workable solutions so that people can actually have a plan and implement it. This is really fascinating. I'm just so impressed at how eloquent you are when you're talking about all this stuff, which I know you've done it for quite a while now, but Vance, I've got to ask, not that it matters one way or the other, but did you grow up in agriculture or a farm or did, is this something that you've just learned the verbiage and stuff since you've worked in the industry for a while? <laughs> Man, that, that, that's actually makes me blush to hear somebody <laughs> that's living in Des Moines, Iowa, say you sound like, you know, about farming. 
I grew up in small town central Illinois. So I had, um, you know, one water tower, one stoplight and farming was all around me. And I used to go out and like walk beans and bale hay, but I had no idea how that was connected to the food system. That was just something people in my area did. If you go stand out in the sun for long enough, people will pay you to do it. And, uh, so when I joined Monsanto, my level of agriculture knowledge was virtually zero. But I did understand the culture of farming because I had grown up with half of the kids in my 400-person high school grew up on farms. So I had an advantage in that I kind of understand the work ethic and the culture of farming, but all of the language, all of the inner workings, what does the work actually entail, I didn't know anything at all about. And I think that that gave me um, – a really good entryway into the the world of farming. I knew how to behave respectfully and listen, but I was not afraid to ask questions and learn. I was never embarrassed that there were things I didn't know. And I think that that made it a really good high bandwidth conversation with people that could teach me like farmers and scientists. So, excuse me, I want to pick up on an issue that is percolating right below the surface in the world of agriculture and uh, on the minds of consumers. Delaney and I both have grown up in livestock operations. We're fairly passionate about the beef industry, and now we're being confronted by this uh, this new surge of plant-based meats. And it seems to me there's this interesting dichotomy where we've got consumers are telling us they they for whatever reason, object to science in our food when it comes to genetically modified organisms. We want less processed foods. We want to go natural, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems from the outside looking in that it's those same consumers who are quickly adopting this plant-based meat, which is, of course, a highly processed uh, you know, product. What do you think is going on there? What's the – is it all cognitive dissonance? Huh. You know – I think that every single person is on their own hero's journey and they understand the world through the concept of, I want to try and do good in the world. I want to try and do right. And one of the things that the alternative agriculture movement has done a very good job of is they don't go out and say, oh, you should be thanking the farmer or, oh, you should be um, – uh, grateful for the way the food system is. Instead, what they say is, I'm the mentor. I have a way to show you what's going on behind the scenes. And if you follow me, I'll show you how the conventional way is doing things and how they're bad and evil and, and overtaken with bad motives. Or you can do it this other way, which is good and wholesome and pure. And that story that they're hearing they, they hear it told in all sorts of different contexts, whether it's the Matrix, which was made like 10 years ago and seen by millions and millions of people, where it's this concept where they basically take the Matrix and use that to show you like what is going on behind the scenes in the meat industry. And this goes on in, in other industries as well. Organic uh, products sometimes do this where they say, we're going to show you what's going on with the rest of the industry. And now you can make a choice to be the hero by spending more money to do something different. And when people are looking at alternative meats, they're doing it because they honestly believe that by making this choice, by making this sacrifice even, because they love the taste of meat, they want it. That's why they're trying to find an alternative. But they're imagining that by making this sacrifice to go to alternative or plant-based meat, that they're doing something good. And in that sacrifice, 
they believe more fully that that their life is complete, that it gives it meaning. And I think that that's really when when it all comes down to it, food is much more closely tied to meaning than most people realize. And that meaning comes from the story people tell themselves about the choices that they make when they go to the grocery store. Wow, that's really interesting to think about it from that perspective. Huh. Vance, I want to ask too, since you mentioned earlier on in the conversation that during Monsanto, you couldn't have your own podcast, you couldn't ask those questions that maybe you <laughs> wanted to, and now you can. And, and looking at the lineup of people that you've had on the podcast, you've had some really interesting people. What's maybe the, the biggest thing that you've learned that you wanted to ask during your time at Monsanto, but you couldn't, that you've learned now, and you're just like, wow, I cannot believe that. I I had a really kind of humbling experience after I had done about 10 interviews, and I had a, a friend over. We were hanging out outside. Their kids were over. We're having a cookout, and he was talking with me about the latest interview that I had had, and he said, "Did you learn? what did you learn? And I said, I guess I don't think I learned anything from that. And he said, why are you wasting your time having conversations where you don't learn something, where you're only asking things you already know the answer to? And I realized in that moment that I had carried on some of the things that go on with corporate America, right? Corporate America is the big and established and they, the risk tolerance that they have of doing something, asking a question where the answer they get back, they may not know or they may not like it. And so about 10 episodes in, I started to realize that if I do an interview and I am not staggered by some answer that somebody gave me, because everyone has something interesting to tell you, and if I am not caught off guard by something that they said, then I'm not asking the right questions. And it really forced me to sit there and say, don't ask the gimmies. Don't ask me, don't ask what you think is going to be an interesting question. Ask something where you don't know the answer to it so that this is an entirely learning process for me. Because if it's a learning process for me, it's going to be a learning process for the, for the listener. And so, you know, I'm a little bashful about the first 10 or so that I did. But, you know, just like you guys have learned, as you do more, you figure out what works, what doesn't, how do you make things better when they're going off track. And that's the... That's the humbling that happens when, when you really take a look at what you're doing. Absolutely. It's how you grow. And Vance, we could sit and talk with you all day long. Fascinating conversation. But unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go. But I'm sure our listeners want to tune in and hear more of your conversations with other folks in, well, many different industries. Why don't you tell us where they can find the Vance Crow podcast? The Vance Crow podcast is on both YouTube. I, I try and do video uh, interviews, and then I also post them on all of the regular podcast apps. So whether that's the Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can get it pretty much anywhere where podcasts are published. And then you can also check out my website, which is just vancecrow.com. Perfect. Well, Vance, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with you. We look forward to watching and listening to the work you're doing in this space going forward. Well, thanks so much for having me, guys. This is a, it's a wonderful way to spend a, spend a morning. Well, again, an interesting and I think perfect Friday conversation, Mike, for today's podcast. But folks, if you'd like to catch up on more Friday-related news, we have our weekly newsletter. We just... Sent out the second one this morning, so you haven't missed out on too many yet, but do head to globalagnetwork.com. In the left-hand corner, there should be a subscribe button right there, and it'll hit your inbox every Friday morning. 
It'll hit your inbox. It'll smack you upside the head with knowledge about agriculture and the other podcasts on the Global Ag Network. Delaney, our listeners, as always, can tune in to us at the Global Ag Network. Go to globalagnetwork.com. Go to agnewsdaily.com. Both places will take you. Both sites will take you to the same place. Or find us on social media. Just search for Ag News Daily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we'll be there. With that, Delaney, should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.